Just a reminder that this Saturday morning at 7.30, we have our men's prayer breakfast. We'll have a special speaker who is uh, uh, Kathleen Wall, who is running for the uh, Congressional Second District in Texas. And you've probably seen her ads on TV if you've turned on the television, because she has been ubiquitous on running her ads. And so that will be 7.30. Then uh, the other thing is the uh, pastor's conference, March 12th through the 14th. If you'd like to volunteer, there will be various areas where we will need volunteers. Uh, check with Pam Richards. <clears throat> also, uh, the Bible Museum trip has been closed out, so... <clears throat> if you haven't reg registered by now, if you're waiting to see what would happen, you waited too long. <clears throat> and then the Israel trip still has uh, room for a number of people. We have, I think, 21, 22 paying right now, and we have uh, several more who are seriously considering it. So we could have somewhere between 25 and 30, which would be a great a great number and give us opportunity to do a number of things when we uh, when we go over there. So that's it for uh, <clears throat> for the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure that we are walking by the Holy Spirit, that we are in right relationship to him, enjoying our fellowship with God, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to get together this evening to focus upon your word. Father, we are mindful of so many things that are going around in this world. We pray especially for our president. We pray for leaders in Congress and the judiciary. Father, we pray for <clears throat> the uh, leaders in the local community and in, in, our, in our state. Father, especially with the primary coming up in about three weeks, we pray that you would uh, guide and direct in that uh, primary, Father. It's very important that we uh, continue to elect men and women who understand absolute truth, men and women who understand the Constitution, and Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to be, make wise decisions in the course of uh, selecting our, our candidates. Father, we're thankful for that Tommy Ice is doing well. We pray that he would continue to regain his strength. And, Father, we're also thankful that he was able to uh, close on his house in uh, Texas this morning and tomorrow morning close on the house uh, in uh, Kansas, we pray, and that that will all, all work out without any glitches. Now, Father, we pray for us as we study your word that we might be challenged by what we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are <clears throat> down in verse 3. Down in verse 3, and 
we are moving forward in understanding the spiritual life uh, based on what Peter is emphasizing in this epistle. But before we go, I have a little cartoon somebody sent me about eight weeks ago, and I've had this sitting in the slide previous to the title slide, but I forget that it's there. So I've moved it today so we would have to look at it. Now this, if you don't understand anything about spelling in English, then this will probably go right over your head. And I'll remind you there's a little rule with the, in English we have a diphthong. A diphthong is two vowels when they come together. Okay, we have the E and the I and we have I and E and there's a little rule I before E except after C. So this plays on that. You have to understand hieroglyphics, and hieroglyphics are a lot of symbols. You have symbols like here, it looks like it's a, a spider, and here's an eye, and here's water, and uh, oh, this is the flea, this is a duck, okay, this is a, a falcon. So it's I before flea except after C. All right into our passage. Now we're having a little bit of a short class tonight because uh, Jeff Phipps is going to come up afterwards and give us a report on his uh, trip to Brazil. He has uh, uh, had the opportunity over the last several years to develop a ministry down there uh, along with his ministry with Camp Arete. So it's, uh, he's really taken the initiative and the Lord's opened the door. So we're going to look forward to uh, hearing from him. Okay, we're in 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and that means in his physical human body, arm yourselves also with the same mind. We focus on that the last two or three lessons, that this is a military metaphor, and it means to uh, arm ourselves. It means to protect ourselves. If I tell you to arm yourself to protect your home from uh, any intrusions or thieves, then you know that you have to go out and you have to uh, purchase a weapon of some sort. It may be a taser, it may be a firearm, it may be uh, something else, but you also would uh, put in a security alarm. You would train yourself, hopefully, to use that firearm so that if necessary, you would be able to properly and legally uh, use that. You'd have the right kind of ammunition and you would be able to hit your target. That's the same idea here, is that we're to arm ourselves in terms of the spiritual life. We have a weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. It is uh, the Word of God, and we are to know it, internalize it, and it should be part of our everyday life and language. I'm reading a, a, <clears throat> a wonderful book right now. Actually, I'm reading about three books all dealing with the same subject in preparation for a trip to the Museum of the Bible, dealing with the... Uh, the the role of the Bible in the thinking of 18th century Americans. And with I'm not being insulting, because it's true for me as well. I'm not being negative. But we're all pretty biblically illiterate compared to the average American citizen in 1776 just the way it was. And because we don't understand that, we often don't understand what they're talking about because their writings were just replete with allusions to the Bible. And if you don't, under, don't know the Bible, then you miss all these wonderful things that they said because they don't, they don't put them in quotes 
And they don't put a reference there. They just, it's just part of the flow of the language and it was part of their stream of consciousness. Whether they were Christians or whether they were uh, skeptics, they had this as part of their mental uh, mental baggage. And so for us, even more so, we should be armed with this same mind, the thinking of Christ as I've covered over the last uh, several uh, several lessons. That should be our mental attitude. Now, when we look at this verse, it picks up the thought that was first expressed, as I pointed out in review the last several weeks, that <clears throat> that it picks up the thought of first this. I mean, First Peter three eighteen. Christ suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And the idea that runs through here is unjustified or undeserved suffering, and this is what we get coming right out of of the uh, last part of First uh, First Peter uh, chapter three. And that is that we are uh, to suffer for doing good rather than that which is, uh, that which is evil. So First uh, Peter 4.1 uh, continues that particular thought. Now, <clears throat> when we talk, talked about 4.1, this same mind, it has the idea, I pointed out, of having the same resolve. It is a commitment to a course of action. That is what a resolve is. But to understand a course of action, you have to understand the goal or the objective. A course of action is always going in some direction. So what is the goal? What is that direction? We've seen that that is God's goal for us is to conform us to the image of Christ, Romans 8, uh, 28 to 30. And this resolve that we have is the key to success in the spiritual life. This is seen in 1 Peter 2.11. Behold, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Now, this is, understanding this, this thread of Peter's thought as we go through 1 Peter is really important. He goes over and reiterates these same ideas, these same themes again and again uh, from the first chapter, that the believers to live differently from the culture around him, not in a uh, in, in in and of itself, but because the culture around is not shaped by biblical truth. When we, our thinking is shaped by biblical truth, truth because we think differently, we will act differently. Now, that brings to mind a little story. One of the more interesting churches I ever went to happened to be the very first church that I candidated at when I was first out of seminary and looking for a pastorate. It was a church in, I'll just say, in South Louisiana. Okay? And when I drove over there, I drove kind of a back way and drove into town, this town, and it was kind of interesting because I, I wasn't sure where I, where I was. It was kind of a uh, strange entry into town, but I found the church, and I got there, and the church building was a nice-looking church building, and they had a parsonage. And from the outside, it didn't really look bad, but when I went in, it looked like it had been built from leftover parts from a mobile home manufacturing site. 
and you would have one color carpet in one room and another color carpet in the next room. One would be shag, one would be uh, not, just, just regular. Uh, in the master bedroom, no two walls had the same color or wallpaper. And if you were in the master bedroom and you looked into the master bath, the wallpaper on each side of the door going into the master bath conflicted harshly with the wallpaper that was inside the bathroom. You had striped wallpaper on that wall in the master bedroom, and you had a sort of a mirror type, you remember these from the 70s, sort of a mirror type flocked wallpaper in the bathroom. And in just about any time you went from one room to the other, you either went up a step or down a step. And the <clears throat> grade of cabinetry and woodwork inside the house was uh, just like you would get in a, in a mobile home. And when you're young, when you are filled with the idealism of serving the Lord, it's like anywhere, Lord, I'll go anywhere. And you just sort of look around, and I thought, I hope this isn't it, Lord. <laughs> but then things got, sort of went downhill from there. I went to an interview with the deacon board. There were four men. Anybody remember the, uh, there was a hit song, Jerry, I uh, forget his last name now, uh, Amos Moses. Who was that that sang that? Y'all remember that? you got to like country music to remember Amos Moses. And, and it's about this Cajun who's got one arm go, let gone and cleaned up to the elbow because some alligator got it. And uh, one of the deacons was like that. His left arm was gone, cleaned up to the elbow, and he could only sp speak Cajun French. And his son was a deacon also. I don't know how he ever had ever understood anything. And probably didn't anyway. His son was also a deacon, and when we had our Q&A, his son would translate for him. It gets better. The first question was uh, what my philosophy of ministry was. The second question was, would I preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing? The discussion on that question went for about an hour and a half. And the reason was is that all these folks in this church got saved from Roman Catholic backgrounds. And in the Roman Catholic community, whatever the Bible says was treated very lightly, and they were drinking and carousing and just air smoking and what, whatever it was that they did, this Christian community, this evangelical community in this Bible church said, if the Catholics do it, we can't. It was about as legalistic as you could get. And, and so that, that's how it, it started. But that's not exactly what the Bible says. The Bible does make a point that you don't conform to the culture around you, but it's not this sort of attitude that whatever they do, you can't. It is that we live on the basis of grace, and we live on the basis of what the Word of God teaches, and we make those decisions, but there is a to be a difference or should be a difference to, in the life of the believer who's walking by the Spirit and the life of the uh, unbelieving pagan community around them so that our, our life, our thinking, our attitudes, our habits are something that reflect the grace and the glory of God. 
So this is what is seen here is that <clears throat> Peter has these commands. And I pointed out last time that there are a certain amount of people who call themselves grace-oriented, but actually they're licentious, and they think that none of the commands in the New Testament have to be obeyed, including not committing adultery and not murdering and many other things, because we live according to grace, and that's according to law. And, uh, you know, I've always wanted to ask some of these people. I've had people who haven't come to my church, whether it was here, Connecticut, or somewhere else, because, well, you just don't understand grace. Maybe you don't understand grace. Grace isn't a license to sin. That's what a lot of people have said about 1 John 1, 9. Well, you just think that if you do whatever and you confess it, you're just fine. No, Peter says that even, we may be forgiven, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences to certain sins. And some of those consequences are internal as the sins of uh, mental attitude sins war against the soul. And they do have an impact on our uh, soul health, as it were, in terms of our spiritual growth. So this is why we go back to First uh, Peter 2.11, and it talks about abstaining from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, and having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Now, we're going to see the reference to Gentiles here in in First um, uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 3, and that <clears throat> that those... Uh, that term is a reference to non-Jews. It's not a, necessarily a synonym for unbelievers, but that our, the conduct should be honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, once again, it's unjustified, undeserved suffering, you're being libeled, you're being reviled, uh, that your good works, the way which you live, that is your testimony with your life, the good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I pointed out that that is an allusion to judgment and that we're all held accountable. Now that comes back into this passage when we get down to verse 5 that talks about they will all give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we have this problem with our sin nature and the lust patterns. I just have two in this diagram, power lust, and we have problems with that that wars against the soul. That is, for most of us, that's about 95% of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare has to do with our response to external adversities, disappointment, heartaches, problems. It doesn't have to do with fighting uh, demons or evil spirits or that dimension of the angelic conflict basic problem we have isn't an external enemy, although we'll get to 1 Peter 5 where he talks about Satan going about like a roaring lion. Satan's major tactic is just to entice our sin nature, and that's where the sin comes. Satan is outside. He can't make you sin, but he can provide testing and temptation that is attractive to us so that we end up sinning. But this idea that we have coming out of First uh, Peter First uh, Peter 2, 11 and 12 goes back even further to where the main body of the epistle started in First Peter 1, 13 through 16. 
There Peter says, therefore, after he goes through his introduction in 1 Peter, where he's talking uh, <clears throat> very much about the fact that we are uh, <clears throat> may face uh, fiery trials, that the Lord has, uh, but we've been born again to a living hope, another phrase that comes up in the passage that we're in, and that we're living our life today in view of this inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled in verse 4. And he goes on and talks about being tested. Uh, the proof of our faith language, as I pointed out when we went there, very similar to James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4. And then he comes, he, after finishing that introduction, he focuses on the themes of First Peter. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, which is just a picturesque idiom. An athlete would... Uh, before running, would take his robe, usually athletes, if they were in competition, they would disrobe completely in the Greek system, and they would run naked, which is the meaning of gymnazo, uh, which has to do with disciplining ourselves. That's the word that's used for disciplining ourselves for godliness. It means to strip off anything that's a distraction. Well, if you were going to run and, and you had a robe, your typical dress of a tunic and a robe, it would get in the way. So you would take it and you would pull it up and you would tuck it into your belt. And that is girding up your, your loins. Well, that's the imagery here is getting rid of distractions, getting things out of the way. And so girding up the loins of your mind is just a picturesque idiom for thinking for focusing, having your mental attitude straight, having that resolve. All of this terminology relates the same. And be sober, that doesn't mean to, to be a teetotaler and not drink alcoholic beverages. It has to do with objective thinking. Don't have your thinking clouded by false concepts, by human viewpoint, by subjectivity, sinful thoughts, things like that. And rest your hope. Once again, that word hope is a key word in First Peter. We are born again to a living hope. We are to rest that hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, again, that is speaking for the Christian. That revelation of Jesus Christ is what occurs at the rapture, and immediately following the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ. So again, it's that looking forward to that period when we are evaluated, when we're giving an account for our lives, which is the idea that comes up <clears throat> here in First Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 5, that we give an account. We'll get into that when we get there. But we are to gird up the loins of our mind. It's all about thinking and focus. And then as obedient children, not conforming ourselves to former lusts. Again, you have to deal with the sin nature and the attacks of the sin nature. This is just a drumbeat again and again and again in First Peter is that part of sanctification is identifying the lust patterns, the trends of your own sin nature, and learning scripture, learning doctrine that you can use in the midst of that temptation. And then they're called to being a distinct people. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Remember, he's writing to Jewish background believers. So in verse 15, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Holy means to be set apart to the service of God. 
when it's applied to God, it has more of the idea that God is unique and distinct. He's one of a kind. There's nothing comparable to God uh, whatsoever. And he has called us to be holier. That is set apart in our contact conduct so that we are dis- live a distinct life. First Peter 1.16 quotes from the Old Testament, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, all of this... Uh, is focusing on teaching us how to have a successful struggle with our sin nature. And when it's successful, it results in a mindset and a lifestyle transformation that sets us apart from the human viewpoint-based culture uh, around us. And so that's going to differ in the way we think, and it's going to make a difference in the way we live. And The reality is, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, where the Word of God is dominant in your soul, then what you will realize, the more you mature, is that you just aren't in step with anything that's going on around you. You realize that you don't think like people around you. You don't evaluate events the way people around you do. You are not interested in the same things that they are interested in. And as you grow and mature, you become, you, you realize more and more that our citizenship isn't in this life, that it's in heaven, and we are just transient. And that is part of growing to spiritual, uh, spiritual maturity. And this, in turn, uh, reinforces the theme of the, the epistle uh, set forth again and again as we go forward. And at the risk of being redundant, it is, as it were, a development of what Paul says in Romans twelve two. Now, I've got three different translations up here on the board. The top one is the New King James Version. The middle one is the they call it the New English Translation. It's an NET Bible. You used to be able to buy a hard copy, but it's put out mostly by uh, scholars in the New Testament Department of Dallas Seminary for the New Testament and uh, mostly, I think, Old Testament as well. I have a lot of issues with their conclusions on in their footnotes, but I'm always I, I look at it all the time because they're very good at pointing out where there are issues. Just like about 80% of the time, I don't agree with their conclusions because they tend to be dominated by a lot of lordship uh, theology that I don't agree with, especially in sanctification. But I put this up here because it sh- I wanted to point out that in all of these verses, what we have is words like don't be conformed. They can't translate it anywhere. It's not, the Greek word has don't be forced into a mold. And I looked at translation after translation after translation this afternoon, seeing if there was somebody who did it uh, differently, and they didn't. So you have this contrast between being pressed into the mold of the world or conformed to the world and being transformed, being completely uh, changed in terms of your thinking, and that's usually renewing your mind, uh, renewing your mind in the NAT version, uh, renewing your mind in the last one is the Holman Christian Study Bible, uh, that translation. There they get it, uh, they do a little better job translating the uh, first line, don't be conformed to this age, and I've talked about that before, it's sort of the spirit of the age, 
But I liked what uh, the NET did here, so that you may test and approve. The verb there is dokimazo, which has that idea of something positive, so that you're you're looking to examine something for what for its value, as opposed to examining something to see what what's wrong with it. Now, thinking about that, perhaps you want to challenge yourself to a little test this next week. Okay. So tonight you'll go home and you'll read through the four chapters in Judges, I think it's four, related to Samson. If you're really enthusiastic, you'll skim over the, um, the transcripts of what I taught about Samson and then do that for three or four days. And I understand that tomorrow there is a new Christian film coming to the theater near you produced by the people who did the God is Dead uh, films, and it is about Samson. So first of all, let your mind focus on the story of Samson, as it's told in the Bible, and then go watch the film and see what you can find that's wrong. Okay, that's the opposite of Dokimazo. You're not going to look to see what's right. You're going to look to see what's wrong. And that's how you should train your children, your grandchildren, when they go to certain movies. I don't have any problem with people going to a variety of different kinds of movies. You just realize that that outside of some Christian films that are specifically done to communicate uh, biblical truth, uh, the rest of films, no matter whether it's uh, the, it's A Wonderful Life or even The Ten Commandments in the old classic uh uh, DeMille version uh, is filled with human viewpoint and and the human viewpoint of of many of these wonderful old films like the Bells of St. Mary's or something like that the human viewpoint there is just as evil and destructive as if you're going to watch one of these really bad pagan movies that come out uh, all the time Human viewpoint is human viewpoint, and it's not good. So we have to learn critical thinking skills when we go see and teach that to your children. You know, evaluate, get, make a little test, read about the film, read about things, and then um, teach them to think about that. So that is what we're to do, to con not be conformed to the spirit of the age, which means you have to understand what in your thinking is shaped by the spirit of the age? You have to understand what the spirit of the age is and then be transformed by the renewing of your mind with the word of God. Now, this is what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 4, 3. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime. We, I think, is just an authorial we that Peter is using here. I don't see that this is a part of his testimony, that he spent a lot of his time doing the will of the Gentiles. But he's talking about that just in a general, first-person, plural, or authorial, we kind of sense. And he's pointing out again that there should be this contrast between the lifestyle that characterizes a Gentile and the lifestyle of a, of a believer. And so he be begins to bring that forward. <clears throat> In this particular section, we're 
identifying the fact that the believer here has chosen uh, to suffer, that is, to deal with certain consequences that come as a result of not solving his problems through uh, sinful or human viewpoint techniques, and that he's going to put aside the sinful approach to problem solving and he's going to do God's will even though that may bring negative consequences, reviling. Uh, He may be the victim of slander, verbal abuse. It's later referred to as blasphemy. And so as we uh, learned about the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. And so he, the, this, this is the believer that has chosen to uh, suffer with negative consequences uh, in order to do what God says to do. And so um, Peter is emphasizing this, that, that this is going to make a difference. Now, we have to understand what this word Gentiles means. And there's going to be a this contrast. And in this case, the Gentiles are probably unbelievers. But the term Gentile in Scripture is not normally used as a synonym for unbelievers. And in this epistle, because it's written to Jews, it's written to those who are in the uh, uh, diaspora. It is those who are scattered, as which is the the verb form for diaspora, back in one one. Those who reside as aliens, that is resident aliens. They're not native to the area. Uh, that that would be Jews. They're diaspora. They're scattered throughout this area of Central Asia Minor or what is today Central Turkey, and so he's used the term. Uh, Gentile uh, one time before, and we have to address this issue because it's key to interpretation. Who are the Gentiles? Is it a synonym for unbelievers, or is this just a term, or is this a term that's trans, uh, uh, contrasting uh, Gentiles and Jews? We talked about this before in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, the contrast with those who are sojourners and, and pilgrims, that again emphasizing their role as believers. They are transient. Their citizenship is not in this earth. And so they are to live differently, and their conduct should be honorable among the Gentiles. Basically, what we see here are three groups of people. We have Gentiles who, when we think about the sin nature, the Gentile lifestyle, now this wouldn't apply to every Gentile. There were moral, stable Gentiles, but the dominant cultural trend was towards licentiousness, especially within the mystery religions and the pagan religions that they worshipped. So that would characterize the Gentiles. So they're on that side of the sin nature that is trending towards licentiousness and lasciviousness and immorality. The Jews, if they're follow, if they're uh, observant to some degree, then they would be following the law. They would have a distinct, but they represent legalism. They represent a false application of the law. So you really have these two different groups, Jews representing a legalistic approach to, to a spirituality and salvation, 
and the Gentiles who would represent a lascivious approach. And what Peter is emphasizing is you're, you're not talking about either one. But in terms of understanding this word and its use, we have to recognize this idea that Gentiles is just another term for unbelievers. It derives from a replacement theology viewpoint. Here's a quote from Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his commentary on 1 Peter, which is in a volume called The Jewish Epistles. That's 1 Peter, 2 Peter, James, and Hebrews. So he says, Again, the use of the term Gentiles demonstrates that Peter is writing to Jewish believers who are living among a Gentile majority. Here again, covenant theology likes to change the meaning of the term. And then he quotes from uh, a theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. Now, Wayne Grudem has some positive things, but he's also got some negatives. He's got some bad baggage. He is, he is the author of what is one of the most popular uh, systematic theologies used in seminaries today. I have found a number of, er- a number of areas where they indicate poor scholarship. But I know he's very good in some other areas, so it's a mixed bag. But he definitely comes from a covenant background. He also comes from what used to be called the vineyard background, third wave of the Holy Spirit. It's uh, quasi-charismatic, not Pentecostal, but charismatic, if you understand those distinctions. But he clearly has this covenant theology background. uh, The quote here uh, begins... Uh, that Arnold quoted, he then explains what he means, that he being Peter, then explains what he means by doing what the Gentiles like to do. Since Peter has frequently viewed Christians as the new people of God, that's where you see the replacement theology idea. Since Peter has frequently viewed Christians as the new people of God, the true Israel, there's no place in the New Testament that Israel means anything other than ethnic Jews. It is used to refer to the, in a phrase by Paul in Galatians 6, greet those of the Israel of God. And you must remember that in the epistle to uh, the Galatians, the Judaizers were a problem. And so within the body of Christ, there were those who were Gentile and those who were Jews. And so uh, Paul is specifically saying, Uh, greet the Israel of God. He's not talking about the believers. He's talking about a Jewish ethnic subset in the body of Christ in Galatia. Every other place in the New Testament that the term Israel is used, it always refers to ethnic Jews. It never refers to the church. And that came in, that idea came in that Israel related to the church through allegorical interpretation or non-literal interpretation, starting with origin and systematized by Augustine in the uh, early church. So this is his statement that uh, since Peter's, uh, Grudem says, since Peter has frequently viewed Christians as a new people of God, the true Israel, earlier in this letter, wrong, Uh, It is quite natural for him to carry through the terminology by using the term Gentiles to refer not to people who are not Jews, but to people who are not Christians. See how he reads his theology into his exegesis. So Arnold then goes on to say, however, there are no exegetical grounds to claim that when Peter writes the word Gentiles, he means unbelievers. In the past, these Jewish believers have been tempted 
to also follow the Gentiles in fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Peter lists six manifestations of the desires of the Gentiles. Now, this has always been a problem for Jews. Go all the way back to the time of the patriarchs. In the time of the patriarchs, they had a problem with assimilation. God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to separate from the pagan cultures around them. There's a couple of examples that we have in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 34, we have the episode of one. Uh, we talked about Abraham. I mean, uh, uh, Jacob and Leah, who are the parents of Judah, but they're also the parents of uh, of uh, Levi and Simeon and uh, Dinah, the daughter in Genesis chapter 34. And Jacob has moved the family near Shechem, which is in the middle of Samaria. Some of you have been there. We've been up on Mount Gerizim and looked over uh, Nablus, and in the middle of Nablus is where Shechem was located. And so they're they're living there, and Dinah gets the hots for uh, Shechem, who is the son of Hamor, who's the sort of the tribal... Hivite, that was one of the clans of the Canaanites, tribal Hivite leader. And so uh, Shechem seduces her, uh, no indication that it's rape or anything like that. She's a willing participant. And then uh, he wants to marry her. And it becomes known that he has already had sexual relationships with her. And so all of her brothers are pretty irritated and angry with Shechem and the Hivite clan, and so this sets up a, a big confrontation uh, between them. And so the sons of Jacob decide to set up a deceptive little trap, and they're going to take care of this situation. And so they say, well, we can work this all out, and there could be a marriage, but for us to do this, everyone here, all the men in Shechem need to be circumcised. And so they are so supportive of Shechem and this marriage that all the men said, well, that sounds like a great idea, so we'll all do that. And, of course, it's quite painful. And the Scripture says three days later. Now, if any of you have ever undergone surgery, you know that the third day is often the worst day. So they wait till the third day when the Bible says they're in great pain and you have... Uh, uh, Reuben, uh, Simeon and Levi, rather, uh, who are two brothers also from Leah, who came in and they massacred all of the males because they couldn't fight back. So they massacre all the males, and then all the other brothers come, and they steal all the livestock, they steal their wealth, they plunder their houses, they take their wives and their children, and the result is that they make themselves, I love the language of the King James, just odious to the Canaanites. They they out-paganize the pagans. They are worse than the, the pagan culture. And so now Jacob is mad at his sons because they've got to leave. He's going to settle down and they've got to leave and they've got to, uh, they have to move on. And the problem is that we see is with Dinah wanting to marry Shechem and all of this is just assimilation. In uh, Genesis 38, you have a, uh, another example. When Judah marries a Canaanite woman, and no desire for uh, separation whatsoever. And he has three sons. And then the oldest son dies uh, before he, he is able to have children. His wife was Tamar. 
And then she's supposed to marry the second one who's Onan, and then we get this whole episode of different things that goes on. And finally, uh, he dies, Onan dies. God takes his life, sent him to death again, just like Ur. And he's the one that's left is Sheila. And Jacob's responsibility is to marry her to Sheila to raise up a child in the name of, of Ur, uh, that leveret marriage idea. But he refuses to do it. So now the drama increases, just like as the stomach turns, and you come along, and uh, she's going to dress as a prostitute on the street. His wife has just died, and so she's going to seduce him, and it just gets gets worse from there. But the point of all this is that the sons of Jacob are acting just as bad as the Canaanites. So this idea of assimilation in the Jewish community goes on. Then we can fast forward to the period of the judges, and they just assimilated again and again. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, so that by the time you get to to, uh, Samson, even the leaders are acting as bad as the the Canaanites. And then it gets bad again in the northern kingdom under almost every king, but especially the worst under under Ahab and uh, Jezebel. And then you have the same kind of thing imitated, but not as consistently in the south. So the Jews have always had this problem with assimilation. Then you can fast forward all the way into the 18th and 19th century once the Enlightenment hit the Jewish community. Uh, Then you had... Uh, Moses Mendelssohn, the father of Felix Mendelssohn, the composer, who broke from Orthodox Judaism, and he's the father of Reformed Judaism, which is just pure liberalism, a rejection of all the history and accuracy and uh, divine authority of the of the Old Testament. And so with the rise of what became known as the Enlightenment, the Haskalah among the Jews, by the mid-19th century, If you were a Jew living in France or Germany or even in Russia during the period of of the Jewish Enlightenment there, then you thought of yourselves first as a German or a Frenchman or an Englishman or a Russian, and they tried to divest themselves of the distinctiveness of being a Jew. And even um, Theodor Herzl, who's the father of modern Zionism, Herzl's parents were so assimilated that they had him baptized as an infant because they didn't want to have any distinction between them and everybody else. They wanted to totally assimilate. And I believe that if it weren't for the rise of anti-Semitism and this situation in France with the uh, court-martial of a French uh, artillery captain by the name of Alfred Dreyfus that gave rise and exposed the anti-Semitism in France that that the the Jews in Europe could have completely disappeared in, in, in assimilation. But when Herzl, who's writing for a paper from Vienna, when he witnessed the level of anti-Semitism at the trial of Dreyfus, he realized that, that there was no hope in assimilation that the only hope was the Jews needed to go back to their land. They re- needed to regain the, the land in Israel and reestablish themselves. And God used that to start bringing uh, the Jews out from not only Europe, but also uh, from around the world. And so this is the uh, problem, is that there's a failure to live distinctly among the Jews. 
But see, this isn't directed, this command back in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 to live a holy life isn't directed to Jews. It's directed, it has resonance with Jewish background believers, but it's directed to church age believers that we there is to be a distinctiveness that will be the natural product in your life. It's not going with some legalistic code. It is that if you are walking by the Spirit, taking in the Word of God, and letting your mind be transformed, you will be different, and that's what develops. And this is what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 4, 3, that, that there were certain things that characterize those Jews who had assimilated to the Gentile culture. And this is lit, a, a list of sins, and we'll come back next time and go through these particular sins and the significance of that. And so we're going I'm going to end here. Uh, Jeff's going to get ready, and uh, he's going to come up and uh, give us a briefing on his uh, trip to Brazil this last time, which was in early December, right, Jeff? late November, early December, right after Thanksgiving. So he's going to come up, and we're going to close in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that we are to be a distinct people, that even though you told the Jews in the Old Testament to be holy because you are holy, that command has been reiterated to us as church-age believers. And what makes us distinct is that we're not being pressed into the mold of the zeitgeist around us, but we are being transformed by renewing our mind, by the study of the Word, the internalization of your Word, the assimilation of your Word into every area of our thinking so that all of our reactions are biblical and not on the basis of our sin nature. Father, challenge us with the fact that we are to uh, live differently, not it for its own sake, but we live differently because we think differently because we have been changed from the inside out. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, before I talk about uh, Natal, I want to do a quick shout-out for Camp Arete. Uh, we, camp is running this year. We, we're not doing the garage sale because uh, Pastor, Pastor King and his wife, uh, Amy, moved down to Sweeney. Uh, he took on a church down there, and they kind of spearheaded the garage sale. So no garage sale, but we are having camp uh, July 15th through the 21st. Um, it'll be in Tennessee at a place called Camp Agape. It's where we held camp last year. Uh, and we had uh, maybe a 20% increase in attendance there in Tennessee and about a 25% drop in cost. So we're excited about that. It allowed us to offer some uh, special uh, tuition uh, for campers, and we're offering it again this year that for every alumni that invites somebody, they get us, the alumni gets a $75 discount. Uh, last year we had uh, uh, maybe two campers that came to Camp Free because they invited so many of their friends. So we're hoping that uh, that works out again uh, this year. So, but uh, so about Natal, uh, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure to uh, to go over and serve 
as part of this local body of Christ. And uh, people talk to me quite often about, you know, what are you doing there? And it's all Jeff. And what are what are the things that you're accomplishing? And and I always remind them that uh, it's really this local body here that, you know, yeah, I'm the one that goes, but I'm a part of this body. And it's really an outreach of this church into the city of Natal. And so I want to thank you for that. Um, the folks in Natal know that. We make that clear when we go there. Part of that ministry, of course, is what uh, Brett Nasworth and the DM2 supplies with the curriculums that we use. Uh, this year we have uh, support uh, from Schaefer Seminary. Uh, they're sending over, um, we had Pastor uh, Professor Mondegron, Mondegron, I believe, tough name there. Ray Mondegron came over and taught a hermeneutics class, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we had, um, I, I had gone into a couple of favelas on uh, maybe a trip or two before. Uh, favela is kind of like a, a very poor neighborhood. Imagine a very poor and dangerous neighborhood in Houston, and then kind of amplify that in size by 10 or 15, and and the danger is probably a little worse too. When you when you go into these favelas, you have to uh, you have to pass by whoever runs that favela. It's usually a drug lord, and you have to get their permission to come in. And so we did. You have to go in and kind of defer yourself to them, and they want to know what you're going to do there. And we went through that whole ritual and got into this favela. And one of the things that we uh, the person that was kind of turned me on this uh, little adventure brought us to a house where they fixed this dinner and this family just to give you an idea of some of the troubles the struggles they have in the favelas uh, the family that we were eating dinner with they had a niece and she had been addicted to drugs I think it was crack and she had beaten the crack cocaine but then she ran out of money so she got into prostitution and they got her out of that and as we're having dinner and talking about all this and and she is saved um, we found out well the drug dealer lives over there and her pimp lives over there right so we're talking three houses down is the drug dealer and then four houses down is the pimp and here's this poor girl that's trying to break free of the sin but it's right there in front of her and I, I tell that story to give you an idea of some of the struggles that uh, folks in these favelas have but as a result of that trip we met some pastors that very excited about uh, learning the Word of God. Um, a lot of these men are, they have the title of pastor, but that just means they're the guy that decided to set up a church. Maybe they don't have the training, certainly not the background that we do, but they do want to teach God's Word. And so we had some conversations with them, and we got about 40 of them together. And that's when we brought uh, Professor Mondegron from Schaefer, came over last year, on my last trip in November, uh, during Thanksgiving, and he taught a hermeneutics class to these pastors. He taught about uh, half of his, a third of his, because he had some trouble getting over, he could only teach a third of his Schaefer Seminary course to this group of pastors. Um, probably 20 or 25 of them were Pentecostal, so it was an exciting time. There were a lot of amens. We had a, somebody had a tongues moment in the back, but we got through that. That was okay. They were listening. Um, they were super excited about being able to study God's Word. Yeah, amen. Thank you, John. And um, it was really, it was very 
for me, for, uh, Professor Ray, um, for uh, Pastor Eliel who works with me, it was just very encouraging and exciting to see their response to the the idea. They had never even conceived of the idea that they could study God's Word and understand what it said. They were used to being told by someone else. So this kind of took root with them. Pastor uh, Professor Ray is coming back in July. He's going to do the uh, second half of his course with them, complete it. And we're also uh, working uh, to bring over maybe six or eight copies of uh, Logos in Portuguese, and we're going to hand those out to uh, the best students in the class. So we're excited about that. That's a part of what this congregation is part of the outreach that you guys have had there. So thank you for that. Um, what I've been doing, uh, still working with Eterno Alianza, which is a church in Panamarin, uh, which is a neighborhood a little south of uh, Natal, maybe 25 minutes. Um, the pastor at that church has decided to start a seminary as well. So we've been with him for about three years now. Uh, we've taught through Romans, uh, Galatians, Romans twice, Galatians, and um, uh, Old Testament survey. We just finished Old Testament survey on my last trip. He invited me back to be, uh, a, he wants me to teach uh, Colossians to the seminary students. So when I come back in May, uh, May 7th, see May 7th through the 15th, 18th, somewhere around there, May 7th through the 18th, we'll be teaching uh, pastors at that church, um, kind of a verse-by-verse walk through Colossians. So we're excited about that. And of course, um, what Professor Ray's doing in addition to what we're doing there in Panamarin, um, I work with uh, a pastor. Uh, his name is Eliel. Very encouraging. The other night, Robbie mentioned about uh, the challenges you have with, with translating from English into any language. And I've been very blessed, or we have been very blessed in our work in the Tall. We have uh, two translators that I work with primarily. And when I say translating with the written and as well as oral translation. And, um, but uh, Prof, uh, Pastor Eliel is a THM from the Word of Life Seminary. So he's very conscientious about, uh, he's very fluent in English, fluent in uh, Portuguese, in Italian, and French. Um, and he understands the subtleties of translation, um, of bringing, especially when you're teaching a technical topic bringing a technical word over from English uh, into Portuguese, into any language, can be a challenge. As one example in Portuguese, justusi uh, is the same word for righteousness as it is for justice. And so just one example of where you have to be very careful when you're teaching a technical topic. Uh, Pastor Eliel has been very good about uh, letting me know kind of where the, the landmines are He's been very good about doing the written translations, um, and he's also uh, helped me in teaching, too. He, uh, we've brought him on board as one of our teachers when we're down there, and so it's been very exciting. As a result of uh, our relationship with him, we've been introduced to uh, a ministry in, um, in a neighborhood called uh, Pantanella, which is a little north of Natal. There's a ministry called Open Arms. And when we go back uh, in May, in the evenings, we'll be teaching at uh, Eternal Alianza. 
And during the days, we'll be teaching at Open Arms Ministry, which is a Baptist ministry that takes men in from the streets um, and gives them uh, a place to live. As long as they attend, they have two hours of Bible teaching a day. As long as they attend the Bible teaching, they, they have a place to live. After they've done about a month and a half of vetting, they will start to train them in a job skill. Um, they've got a whole system set up in the back of this ministry where they've got, you can learn how to make furniture, you can learn how to make shoes, repair cars, repair dishwashers. And as these men go through the ministry, it's a two-year program. They give them a job skill. They're teaching them God's word. Um, and then they bring them back into society, uh, hopefully as a functioning individual uh, with a good biblical foundation. That's right. <laughs> and um, so during the day, we'll be teaching there. Uh, we'll be teaching Colossians there. And then in the evenings, like I said, at uh, Eternal Alianza. Um, one of the things that uh, I always get asked, you know, what can we do? And it goes back to there's kind of three things we can do as a congregation. We can go, we can give, and we can pray. And I can tell you that from my perspective, the thing that, that I covet the most are the prayers. I've seen them answered when we go over there, the way doors are opened, just the way that uh, Professor Ray is over teaching this hermeneutics class to these pastors in the favelas. I mean, that clearly is a direct answer to prayers from folks in this congregation here and in, in the extended congregation out there that are involved and so um, thank you very much any questions John never any questions this congregation <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much you guys have a good evening oh just a second Pastor Dean oh let's close in prayer Father, we, uh, we thank you for this uh, opportunity to share the work that this, uh, this local body of Christ is doing in Natal. Father, we just lift them up. We thank you for their uh, vision. We thank you for their support. We thank you for their prayers. Uh, we do continually pray that the work we do there, the work that we do here, that will remain focused on your word. Father, we'll remain focused on our relationship our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that relationship, that dynamic relationship that we grow in. Father, we ask that uh, you would bless the work that we're doing there in Natal. Uh, continue to bless it. And um, we just thank you for the support we get here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.